Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. A Texas judge invites President Biden to visit his county along the U.S.-Mexico border. He's worried an upcoming policy change will make the border crisis even worse. Elon Musk says Twitter previously interfered in elections. Meanwhile, a former executive opens up about a censored Hunter Biden story. A group of 20 senators have drawn a line in the sand. They're saying no more to mandatory COVID vaccines for the armed forces. The party is over. Well, at least single party rule is over. With the legislative clock ticking away, we'll take a look at what's in the crosshairs of House Democrats these final few weeks. Texas judge is inviting President Biden to visit the southern border ahead of a change in border policy. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more on what else the judge is concerned about. Hidalgo County Judge Richard Cortez is concerned the border crisis will get even worse when Title 42 ends in three weeks. Former President Trump invoked the health policy. It allowed Border Patrol to quickly deport illegal immigrants during the pandemic but the policy was recently struck down by a court order. Now the South Texas judge is asking Biden to delay the repeal and visit his county at the border. That way, he says Biden can learn about the challenges firsthand. The judge is concerned that without Title 42 and no new strategy to replace it, the border crisis will get worse. In his letter, Cortez said even with Title 42, his county is already struggling with illegal border crossings. The judge also asked Biden to prioritize immigration reform for the next session of Congress. Meanwhile, Twitter users are calling out White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre after she claimed Biden has visited the southern border. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy invited Biden to visit the border with him. A Fox reporter asked if the president will go. Here's what the press secretary said. Is he going to? So look, uh, he's been there. He's been to the border. But several Twitter users quickly fact-checked her. Congressman Dan Crenshaw tweeted, President Biden has not been to the border. A Daily Caller White House correspondent tweeted that former press secretary Jen Psaki told reporters that the last time Biden was at the border was when he drove by in 2008. The Biden administration says it expects illegal border crossings to double when Title 42 ends in three weeks. The Department of Homeland Security is projecting an influx of between 9,000 and 14,000 illegal crossers per day. The worst case scenario would be up to 18,000 attempted crossings per day. Right now, U.S.-Mexico border encounters reportedly range between 6,000 and 7,000 a day. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan hit a major roadblock yesterday. A U.S. appeals court rejected the administration's bid to revive the plan. A federal judge in Texas struck the plan down in mid-November. He ruled the plan unlawful. That decision was one of two nationally that is preventing the Department of Education from moving forward. Biden promised to grant debt relief to millions of student borrowers. The White House had no immediate comment on yesterday's ruling, but the administration has said in the past they will ask the U.S. Supreme Court to intervene. They've already asked the high court to lift an order by the St. Louis-based Court of Appeals that bars the program. About 26 million Americans have applied for student loan forgiveness. The Department of Education approved around 16 million requests by the time the plan was blocked. The Texas judge called Biden's move one of the largest exercises of legislative power without congressional authority in the history of the United States.
Twitter CEO Elon Musk says the social media site has previously interfered in elections. Meanwhile, a former Twitter executive admits it was a mistake to censor a story about the Biden family. Here's that story. Yul Roth, Twitter's former trust and safety department head who resigned early November, said that it was a mistake for Twitter to censor a story about Hunter Biden's laptop in the weeks leading to the 2020 presidential election. Roth has been blamed for censoring a New York Post article about emails from Hunter Biden's laptop. The article says the email showed a direct link between then-candidate Joe Biden and his son's dubious business dealings in China and Ukraine. Shortly after the story's publication, Twitter not only prohibited users from sharing it, but also suspended the post's account for two weeks, which was roughly how much time was left before the presidential elections took place. However, they didn't completely remove the story from Twitter. On Tuesday, in Roth's first public appearance since parting with Twitter, he said it wasn't possible to verify the story's authenticity at the time. In his words, we didn't know what to believe. We didn't know what was true. There was smoke. Roth said it didn't reach a place where he was comfortable removing the content from Twitter. He added that it looked like the post was part of Russian military hack, but admitted that it was a mistake to censor it. Also this week, Reuters quoted Roth in a tweet saying, Twitter not safer under Elon Musk. A user replied, Twitter has shown itself to be not safe for the past 10 years and has lost users' trust. The past team of trust and safety is a disgrace, so it doesn't have any right to judge what is being done now. Musk then jumped in on the conversation, replying to the user saying, Exactly. The obvious reality, as longtime users know, is that Twitter has failed in trust and safety for a very long time and has interfered in elections. He didn't elaborate on how Twitter interfered in elections, although Republicans have long said that the social media outlet censored conservatives. And on Wednesday, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen clarified that the government didn't abandon the idea of looking into Musk's Twitter purchase and said, we don't comment on what's in progress. This is after previously saying to CBS News that she didn't think there was any basis to launch an investigation. She said Wednesday that if there are alleged risks to national security, then those should be investigated. Elon Musk tweeted yesterday that the misunderstanding about Twitter being removed from Apple's App Store has been resolved. This following his meeting with Apple's CEO Tim Cook. Musk wrote the two had a good conversation and that Cook was clear that Apple never considered removing Twitter. Musk tweeted a thank you to the Apple CEO for showing him around Apple's headquarters. Musk had accused Apple of the threatening to block Twitter from its app store without saying why in a series of tweets. He also said it had stopped advertising on the social media platform. He later tagged Cook's Twitter account in another tweet asking, what's going on here? No end to the military's COVID-19 vaccine mandate, no vote for new defense spending. That's what Republican Senator Rand Paul and 19 other senators are threatening. NTD's Daniel Monahan has the story. Several U.S. senators criticize the logic of mandates for vaccines they say don't stop transmission. The bottom line here is the vaccine does not prevent infection, does not prevent transmission. So why would we make anybody take it? It is insane. Others, such as Rand Paul, called attention to serious health concerns. The COVID vaccine has a risk of causing inflammation, particularly in young men, particularly the young men that comprise over 90% of our military recruits. Paul, a doctor, says the heart inflammation caused by the vaccines can lead to death. Meanwhile, he says they face little risk from COVID-19 itself and that many members have already had COVID-19. That grants them a form of protection against reinfection and severe disease, which many studies have said is superior to the vaccine. 
Paul was also joined by Senator Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz says he believes that President Biden and Vice President Harris are pushing through vaccine mandate policies to purge conservatives from the military. Purge from the military people who don't agree with their political agenda. I think they're using it as an excuse from the enlisted level all the way up to the majors and colonels to the top brass. Senator Lindsey Graham says the mandate will result in tens of thousands of able-bodied Americans who are well-trained leaving the military because they chose not to get vaccinated. At the same time, we've had millions of people coming to the country legally without vaccination that are being sent by our own government all over the country. Furthermore, he says there's a dilemma the U.S. hasn't had in decades, finding enough people to serve in the military. Twenty senators have signed on to a pledge not to vote for the defense spending legislation without a vote on the mandate. Republican senators hope to gather enough support to block a vote that would advance the defense spending bill. They'll need 41 votes to block the bill. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Democrats are planning for a busy three weeks during the last session of the 117th Congress. They have a series of legislative goals ready for consideration. This as they prepare for the end of single-party rule. Entity's Daniel Monahan has the story. Republicans are now confirmed to have taken the House. That puts an end to the unified Democrat-led government of the past two years. Democrats are hoping to make a few last legislative pushes in the final days remaining. Here are some bills expected to make progress during the final congressional session. The Respect for Marriage Act was at the top of the Democrats' list. That was passed in the Senate on November 29th, 61 to 36, including support from 12 Republicans. It ensures that same-sex and interracial marriages are enshrined in federal law. Democrats are moving quickly to send the bill to the House and then, they hope, to President Joe Biden's desk. The bill gained steady momentum since the Supreme Court's June decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. That ruling ensured federally protected abortion access. In a concurring opinion, Justice Clarence Thomas suggested that related cases could be reconsidered. Those cases guarantee the right to contraception, same-sex relationships, and same-sex marriages. Another area of Democrat focus is the ban of so-called assault weapons. Here's President Biden on Fox News. The idea we still allow semi-automatic weapons to be purchased is sick. It's just sick. Those opposed say the bill will only prevent law-abiding gun owners from defending themselves against criminals and that criminals themselves will find a way to access such assault weapons anyway. Meanwhile, Representative Don Bayer proposed a bill that would place a 1,000% tax on a wide array of semi-automatic rifles. Here's Bayer on CNBC. There's nothing magical about 1,000%. It could be 500, it could be 2,000. We were looking for something that was significant enough to really restrict the purchases of the weapons. Democrats have also mused on the possibility of eliminating the debt ceiling. The Democrat push comes amid fears that Republicans could use the debt ceiling as a bargaining chip. The debt ceiling has long been a focal point of dispute. The U.S. Treasury is allowed to borrow money on U.S. credit, but only with the approval of Congress. Because the Treasury regularly reaches this limit, Congress must approve of further borrowing. Not raising the debt ceiling could have catastrophic effects. A default on the part of the United States would strip the U.S. dollar of most of its value. Democrats are also hoping to push through a bill that would amend the process for certifying presidential election results. The proposed bill would alter the Electoral Count Act of 1887, or ECA. 
During the last elections, former President Donald Trump tried to persuade Vice President Mike Pence to use his role under the original ECA to challenge the results from several state elections that posed the highest risk of voter fraud. The updated ECA would change federal law to significantly lessen the vice president's role over elections. The legislation would also markedly raise the requirements for members of the House or Senate to object to certifying election results. With just eight scheduled working days left in the legislative session, the clock is ticking on Democrats' agenda. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Still to come, small-town voters in Wisconsin find themselves on opposite sides of a political divide, but they share some concerns despite their differences. We have that and more just after this break. Six alleged assailants connected with Antifa have pled guilty. The charges relate to violent attacks on supporters of outgoing President Trump. Eleven total are charged for violence against people at a Patriot March in San Diego shortly after the 2020 election. Five of the defendants pled guilty on November 18th. About a week earlier, another one was sentenced to four years and eight months in prison. The San Diego County District Attorney's Office says, quote, Antifa uses force, fear, and violence to further their interests and suppress the interests of others. Some small-town voters in Wisconsin from opposite sides of the aisle are expressing growing fears for democracy. But despite their differences and concerns, they also share some common ground and hope. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has the story. A growing conservative movement has risen to prominence in Wisconsin's St. Croix County. A number of Republican voters there say they see America as a place where democracy is under attack by a tyrannical government, few officials can be trusted, and where neighbors might have to someday band together to protect each other. Some have labeled them as extremists, fanatics, or conspiracy theorists. What is an extremist? I mean, somebody that wants intact families, wants our rights given us to God through um, through the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. If that is extreme nowadays, I guess I am. Republican Mark Carlson recently retired from his job at a juvenile detention facility. He won a seat on the county's Board of Supervisors in April. I never dreamed of re being required to wear masks or being required to get a shot or even traveling. If you want to travel, you can't. He says he's concerned with the direction the country is heading. I believe there's a plan to lead us towards um, socialism, Marxism, communism type of government um, from within. Democrat Paul Hamilton is a retired English teacher. He is now the local Democratic Party officer. The world is changing. Uh, it, it can be disorienting for people. Hamilton lives about 20 miles away from Carlson. They've found themselves on opposite sides of a political divide. Menace seems to have been part of the campaign for the last uh, uh, four, maybe longer, but really the last six years, something like that. And that, that got in the way of a meaningful conversation about how we solve the big problems that we're all facing. The midterm elections failed to produce the red tsunami many Republicans were predicting. Still, well over 150 candidates that support former President Trump succeeded across the country. Hamilton says overall he's pleased with the midterm results and that it shows people can still be brave and stick their necks out. Uh, we need to be political. We need to speak up. Uh, we need to disagree. It's, it's essential, really.
Despite their differences, both men say they abhor violence and are willing to reach across the aisle. Liberalism and conservatism aren't that far apart. You can be pro-American, pro-constitutional. You just want bigger government programs. I want less. We can talk about it. So I want to let them know we, we can work together. They both agree there is hope for U.S. democracy. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. The Pennsylvania Senate has voted to call Philadelphia's district attorney to an impeachment trial. There are seven articles of impeachment against D.A. Larry Krasner. The articles could result in his removal from office. Republicans blame him for an unprecedented increase in crime. Krasner was one of several key district attorney campaigns that was funded in part by billionaire George Soros. Soros is known for his support of progressive values. But the timing of the move is unusual because the vote was done in a special session on November 30th. That's the last day of the legislative session. No action will be taken until newly elected lawmakers are seated in January. Republicans will hold a majority next session too, but the leader of the Senate Democrats says business not completed by the end of a session can't roll over to the next session. Hundreds gathered in a vigil for the four University of Idaho students who were found dead in November. The mysterious killing still has the community on edge. Security was high for Wednesday's vigil, and participants had to walk through metal detectors to enter the auditorium. The city is small, about 25,000 people, and borders Washington state. The bodies of the students, three women and one man, were found in a house near campus on November 13th. Officers were responding to a call about an unconscious individual when they discovered the bodies. Police said they haven't found a weapon, but it looked like it could have been a knife. Authorities have not said anything about a possible motive, and there are no suspects in custody. The man who violently attacked an elderly Asian woman in New York will spend nearly two decades in prison. And a warning, some viewers may be disturbed by the graphic video we're about to show you. Surveillance cameras captured this brutal attack on a 67-year-old Filipino woman back on March 11th. Authorities say the attacker in the video, Tamalesco, punched the woman more than 100 times and stomped on her repeatedly. He pleaded guilty to the hate crime back in September. Prosecutors announced Tuesday that Esco has been sentenced to 17 and a half years in state prison. According to prosecutors, the victim suffered multiple injuries in the attack, including brain bleeding and facial fractures. Prosecutors are expected to continue their closing arguments in Harvey Weinstein's Los Angeles trial today. He's charged with two counts of rape and five counts of sexual assault. He's pleading not guilty to all charges. In Wednesday's arguments, the L.A. County Deputy District Attorney said Weinstein used his Hollywood power to prey on women. The defense has argued his accusers either fabricated their stories or had consensual relations with him. Hiroshi Mayamura, a legendary hero of the Korean War, has passed away at the age of 97. The son of Japanese immigrants, Mayamura joined the U.S. Army late in World War II. He was called into action during the Korean War. In 1951, Mayamura's company came under attack from the invading Chinese army. Mayamura ordered his squad to retreat while he stayed behind and kept fighting. This bought his squad enough time to evacuate. Despite his own injuries, Mayamura carried a fellow soldier on his back for miles. He didn't drop him even when the Chinese soldiers pointed their guns at him until the man he was carrying talked him into it. Mayamura was held as a prisoner of war for over two years. Upon his release, he was awarded the Medal of Honor by President Dwight D. Eisenhower. 
A scary scene in Utah, a base jumper slammed into a cliff in Moab. He survived and is in critical condition. Before we show the video, a warning that some may find it disturbing. Mitch Edwards' family was driving on Saturday when they saw people with parachutes jumping off a cliff. Two people landed without incident, but the third almost immediately slammed into the cliff. Edwards says the man's parachute got stuck on a ledge. It was dangling at least 70 feet above the ground. With no cell service in the area, it took a while for search and rescue to get there. Once they did, it took about two hours to get the jumper to safety. Grand County Sheriff's Office says he was airlifted to the hospital and is in critical condition. This was one of five base jumping incidents in the area over the Thanksgiving holiday. It was part of an event called the Turkey Boogie. Hawaii isn't the only state with volcanoes currently erupting. It's also happening in Alaska. This is a time-lapse video of the Pavlov volcano. You can see it on the left with its slopes darkened by ash. Pavlov has been erupting for over a year. The Alaska Volcano Observatory says the Great Sitkin Volcano is also erupting and has been active for a while. Meanwhile, three other volcanoes show signs of unrest. Alaska has more than 40 active volcanoes across the remote Aleutian Islands chain. And still to come, former Chinese Communist Party leader Jiang Zemin is dead. Many Chinese say he should have been brought to justice for his persecution of Falun Gong. We hear from some of them. And the head of NATO warns against dependency on China, uses Russia as an example, and says authoritarian regimes should be dealt with differently. We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. When protesters in China and abroad chanted the slogans Xi Jinping step down and Communist Party step down, they launched the most daring and widespread protests by Chinese people in decades. Then suddenly the CCP announced the news of former leader Jiang Zemin's death, sparking speculation. People in China and overseas Chinese are reacting to the news. Chinese state media reported Wednesday that former Communist Party leader Jiang Zemin died due to leukemia and multiple organ failure. Jiang was the communist regime's top leader from 1989 to 2002. Some Chinese citizens spoke to Chinese-language NTD on what they thought about the news. He died at an interesting time, because right now the entire country is resisting tyranny. People are putting forward their basic demands, which is for the CCP to step down. And he died today, so he died at a very strange time. Even before Jiang Zemin died, people around China were waiting for him to die. Jiang is known for launching one of the most brutal persecutions against a faith group in modern times. In 1999, he launched the persecution of Falun Gong practitioners. Falun Gong, also known as Falun Dafa, is a spiritual meditation practice with teachings based on truthfulness, compassion, and forbearance. Over the past two decades, at least thousands of Falun Gong practitioners were tortured to death or were killed and had their organs forcibly removed. Countless more were harassed, imprisoned, or tortured for their faith. He is responsible for extremely evil deeds. He launched an inhumane persecution against the faith group Falun Dafa out of jealousy and suppressed them with crazy methods. 
I think people should have used the legal system, international law, and the Chinese constitution to sue him and bring him to justice. That would have been good for the people. I think that's how he should have ended. Over the past decade, rumors of Jiang's death have circulated in China once in a while. Back in 2011, a Hong Kong-based media falsely reported that Jiang had died. It prompted many people inside China to celebrate with fireworks. A round of condolences went out to China at Wednesday's UN Security Council meeting. While some countries voiced sympathy, the United States, Britain and India all remained silent on Jiang's death. With Jiang's rise to power, China's clampdown on human rights reached new heights. Under his leadership, dissidents, democracy activists and millions of Falun Gong practitioners were imprisoned or sent to labor camps. China is reportedly set to ease COVID-19 restrictions. Several cities are rolling back some measures, and the country's top official on COVID adopted a softer approach to virus prevention. She cited a weakening Omicron variant, as well as more vaccinations and experience. The announcement follows protests brought on by anger over the strict zero COVID policy. The official did not mention the policy in her comments. Our next guest offers analysis on the scale of these protests and how it affects Americans. Please welcome Shi Van Fleet, who is a survivor of Mao's Cultural Revolution. It is a pleasure speaking with you, Shi. Thank you so much for having me. The protests in China recently are the largest seen since 1989 in Tiananmen Square. How different is this protest from that of 1989? I think it's important for people to understand the difference. And uh, the, uh, for uh, uh, today's protest, First of all, it is grassroots. It's everywhere. What are people fighting for? People are fighting for the most basic human rights, the right to live. That's what have uh, happened in the past three years, that people were pushed to the breaking point. People are starving. People are dying in their own homes because they were locked in, and the people lost their basic um, uh, freedom of movement, the whole country turned into a big prison. And that's uh, what happened, that everybody, everybody, not just some uh, uh, students or not some just some uh, intellectuals, is everybody suffering. That's what this um, uh, one uh, uh, important thing to understand is grassroots. It affects everybody. The, the other importance is um, for the first time, really, for the first time in the 75 reign of Communist Party, people really, really are waking up. They are asking the CCP step down, Xi Jinping step down. This is a watershed moment. Yes, and then historically, we've seen when conditions got really bad, that caused the grounds for a revolution. Now, these protests are fueled by the CCP's zero COVID policy. Can you explain for us what has happened leading up to these protests to cause such a historic reaction from the Chinese citizens? I don't think it is widely reported, and I don't think Americans know really what's going on in China. It is so tragic that so many people died, not uh, from uh, COVID, but from the policy. And as the people starved to death, people died because they could not go to, uh, get to the hospital. And, uh, and the other thing people need to understand is the tyranny of the COVID passport. Every day, uh, Chinese are uh, forced to take COVID 
uh, testing. And they go out and have no idea whether they can make back home because they can be in the wrong bus and the whole bus suddenly they found someone's pass, uh, passport, uh, COVID passport has a, a yellow or red code and the whole bus uh, for people were forcefully taken into um, I-Court concentration camp, the quarantine center. And the people's lives are just totally, totally ruined and controlled by their uh, COVID passport. And that's what people have to understand. And Xi, we've seen some Chinese cities starting to pull back some of these restrictions. What do you expect the CCP's next step to be? Um, I expect that they would not let go the, uh, the, the lockdown policy because that would be a sign that they're weak. They would never answer uh, the demand of the people. I think we already seen that um, in uh, uh, public spaces, in metro, the police randomly stop people and check their phone. And if they found any um, app that allow them to uh, to see uh, the, uh, the media outside, they will be deleted and get a warning. And I think we're going to see uh, more uh, uh, crackdown of uh, um, information coming in. And uh, um, don't don't even think that the uh, the CCP will uh, will answer people's um, will address people's concern. That's not their style. Yes, certainly in China, we've seen very close monitoring of people's personal information. Now, why should these protests be important to Americans? This is the most important question to me. Is people, uh, American people, please do not. Uh, uh, look at this, what's going on in China as if it's something happened over there. What's happening in China has everything to do with America because the, uh, the radical left, they want to implement the same thing. And the teachers union, they want to shut down our schools and uh, they just want to shut us down. Why? Because they want to control us. Well, it's very important for Americans to know that. Shi Van Fleet, survivor of Mao's Cultural Revolution, thank you so much for your analysis. Thank you. A Hong Kong court pauses the high-profile trial of tycoon and Beijing critic Jimmy Lai. He faces charges under the Beijing-imposed national security law. Hong Kong authorities recently asked the Chinese regime's highest legislative body to decide whether to block foreign lawyers from national security cases. That would affect the British lawyer who now leads Lai's legal team. Lai's team did not oppose the adjournment. Lai is one of the most prominent Hong Kong critics of China's Communist Party leadership. Lai's case is being closely watched by the public, legal community and diplomats amid fears that Hong Kong's rule of law is being undermined. Lai's newspaper publication, Apple Daily, closed in June 2021 after authorities raided its offices, arrested staff, and froze assets. Lai's repeated arrests and prosecutions have drawn criticism from governments and international rights groups. The head of NATO warns countries against dependency on China and points to the war in Ukraine and dependency on Russia as an analogy. We need to realize that when we engage economically with authoritarian powers like Russia on gas or like with China on some critical commodities, rare earth minerals for instance, it has consequences for our securities. So these decisions cannot only be made based on commercial considerations. 
NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg spoke at the Berlin Security Conference. He said if authoritarian regimes see that force is rewarded, the world will become a much more dangerous place. He also said while the support NATO gives to Ukraine is expensive monetarily, for Ukraine it's expensive in terms of the blood they shed. At an earlier NATO foreign ministers meeting, the alliance pledged to help Moldova, Georgia, and Bosnia-Herzegovina as they face pressure from Russia and to continue supporting Ukraine, including help with rebuilding the country's infrastructure. NATO foreign ministers also met directly with Ukraine's foreign ministry on Tuesday and agreed to keep supporting Ukraine, including help with the country's air defenses. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And just ahead, the U.S. Embassy in Madrid has received a letter bomb, the sixth such package recently found in Spain. Other recipients include the Spanish Prime Minister and the Ambassador of Ukraine. And the European Union looks into establishing a war crimes tribunal for the war in Ukraine. It would need United Nations help more shortly here on NTD News Today. The U.S. Embassy in Madrid has intercepted a suspicious package. It looks very similar to the five letter bombs recently discovered in Spain. Police set off the package in a controlled explosion. It was a sixth letter bomb. The first bomb was sent to the Spanish Prime Minister last week. Since then, the country has tightened security around public buildings. A second package was addressed to the Ukrainian ambassador to Spain. It exploded yesterday, injuring a Ukrainian embassy official. Ukraine's government has warned all its embassies abroad to increase security. Last night, the third bomb was sent to the Spanish weapons manufacturer Instalaza. The company has shipped more than 1,000 rocket launchers to Ukraine. Today, the three more bombs went to an airbase that houses European satellites, the Spanish Defense Ministry, and the U.S. Embassy. The Spanish court is investigating the situation. The European Union has proposed setting up a U.N.-backed specialized court to investigate possible war crimes committed by Russia and Ukraine and to use frozen Russian assets to rebuild the war-torn country. The European Union will try to set up a court backed by the United Nations to investigate and prosecute possible war crimes committed by Russia and Ukraine. Russia must pay for its horrific crimes including for its crime of aggression against a sovereign state. While the crime of aggression is recognized under international law, there is currently no specific court or tribunal to which Ukraine can turn. The International Criminal Court launched its own investigation, but does not have jurisdiction to prosecute aggression in Ukraine. EU officials say the support of the United Nations for the specialist court is essential to help resolve the issue of immunity from prosecution for heads of state. Russia has repeatedly denied targeting civilians and other war crimes. Von der Leyen also proposed a plan to confiscate frozen Russian assets. Russia must also pay financially for the devastation that it caused. The damage suffered by Ukraine is estimated at 600 billion euros. Russia and its oligarchs have to compensate Ukraine for the damage and cover the costs for rebuilding the country. And we have the means to make Russia pay. On Tuesday, justice ministers from the group of seven wealthy democracies agreed to coordinate investigations into war crimes. 
Russian cyber criminals released 6.5 gigabytes of data today. It's from the team that stole personal data from nearly 10 million Australians. The hackers published the raw data in six zipped folders contained in a folder called Full. Up until today, the stolen personal data had been released continuously in tiny batches. The criminals indicated that this dump is the end of the Medibank hacking saga. Medibank is Australia's largest health insurer. The company warned that the hackers access data from around 9.7 million current and former customers. That includes names, dates of birth, addresses, Medicare numbers, phone numbers, and email addresses. Medibank previously said that it would not give in to the cyber hackers' ransom demands based on extensive advice from experts and the Australian government. The European Commission proposed yesterday new rules to reduce packaging waste. The goal is more recycled content in plastic drink bottles. It also targets the reuse of takeaway cups and materials used for online deliveries. Under the proposal, all 27 EU members will be required to reduce packaging waste per capita by 5% by 2030 and 15% by 2040. That's compared with 2018 levels. Packaging now accounts for 36% of municipal solid waste. The commission said plastic packaging waste would continue to rise if no action were taken. It says that such non-action would increase emissions of greenhouse gases and jeopardize the EU's target of net zero emissions by 2050. By 2030, all packaging will need to be designed so that it can be recycled. The U.K. is experiencing its worst-ever outbreak of avian flu this year with millions of birds culled. Conservationists are worried the situation will worsen for wild birds over the winter months. Here's the story. Here in the Walthamstow wetlands of London, swans, ducks, geese, grebes and many more birds live. But as peaceful as it may seem, conservationists are increasingly worried the bird population here is under threat. The UK is facing its worst ever outbreak of avian flu, with over 250 cases confirmed since October of last year, and millions of birds culled. Previously, uh, avian flu has been an issue for poultry farming, captive birds. Um, However, I I think it should be acknowledged now that it's also a major threat to our wildlife bird populations. At the moment, Salter and his colleagues pick up one dead bird per day on average. He says most deaths are linked to avian flu. Salter says typical symptoms include that the bird becomes lethargic. It struggles to lift its head and has weeping eyes and nasal cavities. So it it would be quite obvious that it's a quite sick bird. It's unable to swim, um, fly. Um, Seen quite widely this year on social media is the sort of neuro impact it can have on some seabirds where they, they perform very unusual behaviours, twitching, um, sort of like twisting of the neck. Um. In the wetlands, signs from the Animal and Plant Health Agency warn the public not to touch or pick up a dead or visibly sick wild bird. The agency's head of virology says the virus started in Asia and has since spread to Europe, the Americas and West Africa. This particular strain, H5N1, seems to be particularly fit and able to spread amongst different populations of wild birds. And because it's able to do that, it has been maintained at levels through the spring, summer and autumn, levels far higher than it's done historically. While the situation is evolving rapidly in birds, Brown says the risk to humans is low. 
But Salter is worried the situation among birds is likely to get worse as winter approaches. London Wildlife Trust is urging the government to do more to help conservationists better monitor and record the outbreak and find solutions to recover colonies of birds. And a similar story in Peru, where more than 13,000 birds, mainly pelicans, have died along the country's coasts following an outbreak of avian influenza. Authorities have reported finding dead pelicans on beaches in northern and central Peru for the last two weeks. Videos provided by local media show cleanup workers removing dozens of dead pelicans scattered on the sand on Monday. Peru's Agricultural Health Service declared a health alert last week to prevent the spread of avian flu to farm poultry. Authorities are concerned that the disease will spread further among commercial and backyard poultry. And just ahead, demand for non-alcoholic beverages is on the rise. The French are renowned for their wine. Now they're experimenting with alcohol-free options. And UNESCO considers Serbian plum brandy for intangible cultural heritage status. The liquor has been handcrafted in the country for centuries. Stay tuned for more on that when we return. Good to have you back with us. When pandemic lockdowns kept the French indoors, some looked for non-alcoholic beverages. Two years later, demand is increasing. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more. Frenchman Augustine Laborde stopped drinking alcohol during the COVID-19 lockdowns, but he struggled to find non-alcoholic beverages in Paris. Two years later, he opened what he says is the first alcohol-free wine and liquor store in France, a country renowned for its wine. I had the idea of opening an alcohol-free wine and liquor store in 2020 during the first lockdown. I stopped drinking alcohol and the idea appeared when I realized there was no physical store specializing in this kind of drink. Then it took roughly two years to find the products, the financing and the place and open the shop. France is the second largest consumer of wine in the world and non-alcoholic beverages have lagged behind other markets worldwide, but there's still growing demand. We are opening a market. We are testing things. Every week, we reorder the shelves. We introduce new products to see what the trends are. So we have not reached our financial objectives yet. But we are very happy about opening the business and especially the customer's feedback. We really feel that we are responding to a very strong demand, and that's encouraging for what comes next. According to figures from consultancy group IWSR Drinks Market Analysis, the non-alcoholic wine market grew 24% worldwide in 2021, but consumption in France grew by just 4%. Even so, attitudes are changing. It's really good, and it reminds me of the memory I have of champagne, which I can't drink anymore. Customers in Augustine Laborde's shop are trying something new. One tried a glass of alcohol-free red wine. It really smells like wine. It smells like wine. The taste of wine isn't there, but it has tennis, which is quite surprising. I don't always feel like drinking wine. I don't always want to drink alcohol, actually, but I still want something that is a bit festive. So this is a good compromise. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Serbs love their plum brandy. Now they hope the liquor will make it onto UNESCO's intangible cultural heritage list. And today's Andrew Thomas has the details. 
A plum brandy called Šlivovica has been handcrafted and consumed in Serbia for centuries, and the custom has continued from generation to generation. Miroslav Milosevic makes his own. He uses plums from the family orchard and a technique passed down from his grandfather. You can buy brandy everywhere, but you cannot always buy pure and nice brandy. We brew brandy purely from plums. Some people make all sorts of things. We make pure brandy for our own use, and what is left can be given as a present to friends or sold. As he measures the alcohol content, he thinks of the stories passed down about the liquor. Some even considered it a remedy. Our elderly used to say it's a medicine. It's like a cure if you drink a small glass of brandy for the body and soul. Later this month, UNESCO is expected to decide if the spirit makes its list of the world's intangible cultural heritage. Šlivovica is sometimes kept in oak barrels, and it gets better with age. The popularity of plum brandy stems from the popularity of the fruit that it's made from. Plums are very important in Serbian ethnology and sociology of everyday life in Serbian history. There is no other fruit Serbs are so closely attached to as the plum. Serbs drink it in celebration and mourning. The liquor is also offered to welcome guests or mark important events. Plum brandy has always been tied intimately to family. The best brandy would be consumed for a son or daughter's wedding for important events. It would be consumed during religious or sacred events such as births, baptisms, weddings, but also funerals. So plum brandy is part of people's life in Serbia and has always been part of this nation's identity. Now Serbs will have to wait in anticipation to see if UNESCO agrees that their traditional drink is worthy of recognition. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Coming up, what does 4,000 pounds of candy get you? A massive gingerbread village. We'll take you to Gingerbread Lane in New York City and hear from the artists behind the winter wonderland. And shoppers are back at New York City's Bryant Park. Small businesses at the market hope to make up for nearly two years of missed business. We'll be back with more soon here on NTD News. Maine lobster and caviar are on the menu today when President Joe Biden hosts French President Emmanuel Macron at the Biden's first state dinner. First Lady Jill Biden and White House staff previewed the arrangements on Wednesday. Maine lobster poached in butter, beef with shallot marmalade, and a trio of American cheeses are on the menu. Dessert is a fluffy orange cake with roasted pears and special ice cream. A glitzy White House state dinner is a high diplomatic honor reserved for the closest U.S. allies. Thursday's affair will be the first one for the Biden administration. Festive crowds cheered as the New York Rockefeller Center's Christmas tree was lit up last night. Social media video shows onlookers counting down before the annual tree lighting takes place. The tradition started in December 1993. This year's tree is a Norway spruce and boasts 50,000 multicolored LED lights and a three-dimensional Swarovski star. A gingerbread village display has just recently opened at Essex Market in Manhattan. The winter wonderland includes about 4,000 pounds of candy. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the details on the candy neighborhood. John Lovich is the artist and creator behind Gingerbread Lane. For him, gingerbread is a way of life. The Essex Market Gingerbread Lane display features about 700 houses. 
So what's behind me, or by definition I'm standing in the middle of, uh, is the largest gingerbread village in the world. We have multiple Guinness World Records. This year's not exactly big enough to compete for the Guinness World Record for the number of houses, but it is big enough to compete for the Guinness World Record for square footage. The Missouri native got his start in the gingerbread business in Kansas City almost 29 years ago. Ten years ago, he started doing exhibitions in New York City. This year, he has three displays. Here at Essex Market, one in Salt Lake City, Utah, and another in Kansas City. Gingerbread Lane has a real nice escapist quality. Uh, you can come here and look at this, and, and, and for that brief moment, you're going to forget about your mortgage or COVID or politics or Aaron Judge or whatever's driving you crazy because this will take you away from it for a few minutes. And we have people that sometimes look at it 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes, and they really enjoy it. It's a great feeling for me to know that I'm responsible for creating that feeling of happiness. Lovich does all his baking in his kitchen in Queens all year long. He says he'll start preparing for next year about five days before Christmas. Thanksgiving just happened and Christmas is three and a half weeks away and that's about when I start over for next year. So I'm, I'm wrapping up some small details here the next couple days, just kind of tying up some things and then I'll go all over the country to my other exhibits in Salt Lake and Kansas City, conducting Make Your Own Gingerbread House classes and then we'll reboot. Somewhere around the 20th of December, I'll get started for next year. The Essex Market Gingerbread Lane exhibit runs through January 16th. When the display ends, visitors are welcome to take home a gingerbread house for free. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Shoppers are returning to a New York City Christmas market. Small businesses are eager to bounce back after lockdowns hit the last two festive seasons. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the latest. At Bryant Park in New York City, Christmas shoppers are milling around the holiday market. The area is officially known as the Holiday Shops by Urban Space at Bank of America Winter Village. Small businesses here are hoping to make up for nearly two years of missed business. COVID was, was very challenging for our, our family bakery um, as ridership and most transit hubs were down dramatically for a very long period of time. But we are starting to see the terminals come back to life and you can really see the, the life and the energy here at Bryant Park this, this winter. The scent of pine wafts from candle sellers' booths. Visitors enjoy gingerbread cookies and hot apple cider. Ice skaters make figure eights around the rink in the center of the market. This year we're super happy to have so many new customers and folks walking around the park. We've seen a lot more customers here able to interact with our products, smell our products, pick them up, touch them. We're really happy with the um, amount of people we're seeing and from all over the world as well as local New York City. Small businesses say it's beginning to feel a lot like Christmas, both emotionally and financially. Lisa DeVoe is the owner of Soap and Paper Factory. She's enjoying the return to normal. A lot more tourists from overseas, yeah, again, which feels great. And you know, you hear, you know, while you're selling, we're talking and you're hearing their stories of like, you know, they haven't been overseas for a couple of years and they're so happy to be here. So Urban Space now operates three holiday markets in Bryant Park, Union Square and Columbus Circle. This year, it's adding another one in Brooklyn that opens November 28th. For some small businesses, the markets are a welcome reprieve after a brutal few years. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. NASA's Orion spacecraft is on its journey back to Earth. The unmanned lunar orbiting mission is a stepping stone to exploring both the Moon and Mars. 
Orion comes back around from the far side of the moon today. NASA has been testing the craft's various systems during the flight. Progress has been smooth. The team says it's able to add more tests to the return leg of the mission. The Artemis project has created tens of thousands of jobs and billions of dollars in commercial revenue. NASA says this flight is a dress rehearsal for the next moon flyby in 2024. By then, there will be astronauts on board. If things go well, astronauts could land on the moon as soon as 2025. The last time man set foot on the moon was 50 years ago during the Apollo 17 mission. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.